I can do dominoes. It's my spiritual gift. It's in 1 Corinthians 12. So a lot of us, by nature, this is kind of our default, we view faith as a house of cards, and here's why. When we go to church, whether it's through starting points or whether it's through our, our youth programs, we always take a systematic approach, which means this week we're going to talk about how God created a perfect world, but it was ruined by sin, and there's a piece of your faith. And then we talk about this, this whole Jesus guy and his resurrection, and there's another piece to the puzzle. And then we talk about uh, how God designed marriage, relationships, love, and all that stuff. There's another piece. We talk about who God the Father is, who God the Son is, who God the Holy Spirit is. And we talk about, um, what else do we talk about? Baptism. We talk about, ooh, communion. And, and we start to build all these things up one at a time. And to be honest, every one of them, as you go through them, they make sense. Right? You spend 45 minutes, you spend an hour talking about one of these things, and you're like, absolutely, I believe that. And so you plug it in to your system of faith. But here's what all of us experienced at one time or another if you grew up a Christian. You see, if you grew up a Christian, your parents brought you to church, maybe you even attended a Christian school, you had a very clear picture of this uh, idea of faith and all the different parts that went along with it. But one day, college happened. One day, you became a 20-something, and you went into the workforce. You got a career, and you started to mingle with people. Maybe it was a professor at school. Maybe, maybe it was a coworker. Maybe it was someone who you thought was a friend. And, and all of a sudden, they're not attacking your whole thing. They're just saying, hold on. You believe in a six-day creation? Are you sure about that? Because there's all this data and all this research and this evolution thing. I don't know if you've heard about it, but everything is pointing to you're not right. Or you, you really believe that, that uh, there was this worldwide flood? Don't you know there's no data, there's no support for it? Or don't you know all the archaeological findings? Don't you know that there's all sorts of holes in the Bible? Do you really believe Leviticus chapter 22? I mean, do you believe that? The point is, there are so many different places that uh, someone, even ourselves, these doubts can come from within. There's so many different areas where someone can test our faith. And if you know anything about a house of cards, apologies if you're just thinking of Frank Underwood right now. <laughs> Not judging you if you do. If, if, if this is how we view faith, we all know this, all it takes is one little doubt and what happens. It's going to be loud. Cover your ears. Wow. See, that was a resilient faith, but it still broke. <laughs> we all know that with a house of cards, it just takes one weak link. Many of us have experienced this in life, where we went through a phase and someone attacked a faith, or maybe they meant to, maybe they didn't, maybe it was just something we read, I don't know. But our faith was challenged in one little area, and then it felt like the whole thing fell down. This is the first fill-in if you want to take notes. If faith is a house of cards, all it takes is one doubt, and the whole thing will come down. Now, what I want to share with you today as we close up this series is that because Jesus is alive, this is not the model of your faith. God never implied 
that your faith has to be about you figuring things out and putting one thing on top of another. That's not the way he describes it. And today what I want to send you away with is a greater conviction. When God shows you what faith really is like, you'll see that the answer is actually in front of you all along. Now the good news is it's not just people in the 21st century who maybe have this idea of what faith is and how it's up to us to defend it and it's this delicate thing. Uh, This idea has been going on forever. In fact, ironically, you see this very idea come up from Jesus' own disciples back when Jesus was still around. His disciples had this idea that the faith was all about what they were doing and, and how they had to manage it and take care of it. And there were many times when their faith came crashing down too. So what we're about to experience is when Jesus appeared to two people, two of his followers, whose faith had come crashing down, and he enters the mess to show them how they can have greater conviction. And it does not mean building another house of cards. So to find that, we're going to open up to what, one of my favorite writers in the Bible. His name is Luke. And the, the reason I like him is because he interviewed real people who experienced these things. And he simply just wrote out an orderly account of all the eyewitness accounts that, that he heard. And so we're going to see an account here from Luke. It's uh, what we call Luke chapter 24. And the, the events we see take place happen on Easter Sunday. So we started this series at Easter. We're ending it at Easter. It's like a good bookmark thing, but, or bookend. Um, but uh, this happens on Easter Sunday. And I'm just going to let the text speak for itself because Luke does a marvelous job, better than I could, of setting this up for us. So Luke 24, verse 13. Now that same day, Easter Sunday, two of Jesus' disciples were going to a village called Emmaus. Now we don't know exactly where Emmaus was, but thankfully there's a little uh, note embedded in the text. It was about seven miles from Jerusalem. So two disciples, I believe they were husband and wife, and I'll tell you why in a minute. Um, But two disciples, two followers of Jesus, are now leaving Jerusalem. And you have to ask the question, well, why? Why would they leave? And the answer is simple. They were following Jesus, and now Jesus is dead. So they might as well pack up and go home. And so we're going to see some amazing things happen as they take the seven-mile journey to this place called Emmaus. Here's what happens. So these two were talking with each other. And they were talking about everything that had just happened. Perhaps as they were leaving Jerusalem, they were telling each other, hey, you remember how just one week ago today, Jesus was going into Jerusalem and people were cheering for him? Yeah, that was crazy. And now he's dead. What happened? I don't know. And they're trying to figure these things out. They're talking, they're discussing. And as they talked and discussed these things, I want to pause right there because these words are actually a little bit more pointed in the way that Luke recorded them in Greek. It's not just that they were chatting or conversing, but it it seems that he's implying there was an argument, there was a dispute. They were lecturing each other, which makes total sense, because when you have a faith system that's up to you to build and manage and defend and all these things, you're going to get defensive when something rattles it. So these two, they're fighting. And by the way, this is another reason why I believe they're husband and wife. They're working things out, okay? And they got, a, they got seven miles to do it. So that's, that's good news. If, if you have a 
married people, seven-mile walks are a good thing every once in a while. So they're walking along. They're disputing things. They just don't know how to make sense of what just happened. They believe Jesus is still dead. And all of a sudden, what happened? Well, Jesus himself, poof, came up and walked along with them. Okay, he's like a ninja. He just, out of nowhere, he's just walking along with them. But here's the interesting part. They were kept from recognizing him. And there's two explanations why maybe they didn't recognize him. Number one is the supernatural explanation, which I don't completely buy into. Maybe Jesus went X-Man on them and changed his appearance, you know, to look like someone else. Um, maybe it was some sort of supernatural thing where he blocked their vision or changed the way they see things. That's the supernatural explanation. But I believe there's a simpler natural explanation. You see, you don't see what you're not looking for. They were not looking for Jesus. They were not expecting him in the context of the living because they thought he was dead. You know this from church. You see Bob at church, and you're just like, hey, hey, Bob, how's it going? He's like, oh, good, good. And then you see Bob at the grocery store, and you're like, who is that guy? You ever have that happen, or is that just me? Okay. Because the other two services were like, this guy's crazy. I'm glad it happens to other people, too. They were expecting Jesus to be in the context of the dead in the tomb because that's what they thought he was. But now in the context of the living, they don't even take the time to look at him. They don't care who he is. They do not recognize him. You do not see what you are not looking for. So Jesus appears next to him. He starts walking with them because, hey, if you get raised from the dead, if you raise yourself from the dead, what better way to spend your day than walking seven miles? But this is exactly where Jesus wanted to be. And some of you, you're walking the seven miles now. You're searching. You're, you're, you're trying to figure out this whole faith thing. And I want you to know Jesus is there with you. Even if you can't recognize him, he's there. This is how it continues. I love this part. I love it when God asks questions, don't you? It's like, why is he asking questions? So Jesus asked them, what are you fighting about? <laughs> what are you discussing as you walk along? I love it when God asks questions because he's not looking to learn something. He's looking to teach something. It's when we answer those questions and put them out of our heart and say, here's the answer. It's then that we actually look at what it is we believe in what we know. What is it you're discussing? And they say, well, they just stood there and their faces were downcast. You know that something is really messing with them. And some of you have felt this exact same way when doubt shattered your faith in God. There is nothing someone can say or something can, someone can do to take away that feeling of sorrow and uncertainty. But maybe God can Here's, here's how it continues. What are you discussing? Well, one of them, finally we get a name, one of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem right now that hasn't heard of all the things that have happened here in these days? Are you the only one? Have you been living under a rock? Are you just been closing your ears? Saying this to the one to whom everything just happened. <laughs> There's lots of irony in this section. I want to pause at the name of Cleopas because we don't know exactly who he is. There's some ideas that maybe he, he has a different name that's mentioned elsewhere in the Bible. The one thing we know about him is his name. Um, it's a shortened version of the name Cleopatras, and you might know the feminine version of it better, Cleopatra. No connection to her. 
But the name itself means, get this, glory of Father. So if you're looking for a way to make your child's life really crazy, just name them Dad's Glory. Everything is riding on this son. Dad's glory, dad's reputation, dad's honor. Son, do not mess it up. Your name is Cleopas. Your name is dad's glory. So now in this this amazingly ironic (laughs) turn of events, dad's glory is now dismissing the glory of the father. Now, I love how Jesus continues. So Jesus asked for this, right? He says, what are you talking about? What are you discussing? And they're open with them. And then... (laughs) I love this next part. Jesus asked another question. What things? You talk about these things going on. What things? I'm just curious. What things are, are going on? And this coming from the one who suffered and endured those very things. You see, when God asks a question, he's not trying to learn something. He's trying to teach. And it's when these disciples, these two people, put out what's in their heart, then he can address it. Uh, next, next slide here. One thing I love about Jesus is that when Jesus encountered people who were doubting, he didn't just dismiss them. You see this coming up in a little bit with a guy named Thomas, who's also called Didymus, and we call him Doubting Thomas. But I say we can also call him Doubting Didymus. Has a better ring to it. At least give him a cool name if we're going to call him something bad. But uh, we call him Doubting Thomas. And why do we call him that? Because he was upfront with his doubts. He said, I don't believe that Jesus is alive. I need to see it for myself. I need to see the nail marks and I need to see the hole in his side where they pierced him. And so when Jesus approached Thomas later, what did Jesus do? He addressed his doubts. He said, Thomas, I can see you haven't been seeing things and you want to. So here, look at the nails here. Put your hand in my side. It's me. I'm alive. Um, When Jesus encountered doubters, he didn't dismiss them. He addressed the doubts. And here's why I believe the church should be the same, shouldn't it? Church should be the safest place where people with doubts, people with questions can come in, not just to be dismissed and told, oh, just believe, just have faith. Church should be the safest place to come in and really ask those questions, get them out there, and then have them addressed with an adult conversation. And that's what I love about this church. We should be a place where people with doubts can have them addressed and a place where doubters are not dismissed. All right, next verse. We're going to see what happens. So Jesus is continuing to travel. Well, what things? Tell me about these things, Jesus says. And, and they answer, well, it's, it's about Jesus of Nazareth. Don't know if you've heard, if you've heard of him. Okay, there's a guy named Jesus of Nazareth. Apparently, you're just living under a rock. So let's summarize who he is for you. He, first two words, he was. Saying this in the presence of him who is called I am, they call him he was. And we do that too when, when we try to put together a faith and say, oh, it's just all this historical detail and these things happen and put it all together. It's more of a he was kind of faith. And in a minute, Jesus is going to challenge you to make it more of an I am faith. I am here. I am present. But they said, well, he was a prophet. He was powerful in word and deed, both before God and before people. He was amazing. And they go on. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. You see, we had these hopes of Jesus. 
that, that he would do certain things, that he would give us certain things, but his crucifixion ended our hope. Our hope ended. We had hope that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And from our perspective, we look at that and we think, how foolish. Didn't you have to know that Jesus had to suffer in order to redeem? And Jesus is about to get there. But before we do, I just want to bring you into this too. Sometimes we have these hopes and expectations for God and, and we build up our ideas and our dreams and we think, God, this is who you should be for me. And at some point it comes crashing down because God isn't who we want him to be. He's who we need him to be. And Jesus is about to show that to these two. Um, next verse. And, this is, and they keep going. What's more, it's, it's, it's been the third day. So he's been dead three days. And in addition, some of our women amazed us. We're getting these conflicting feelings. He's dead, but he, we hear he's not dead. Um, they went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. Ironically, they're standing right in front of his body, but the women couldn't find it. And they go on, they go on. So they came and told us, these women came and told us that they had seen this vision of angels, and these angels said that he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb, but they did not see Jesus. They told Jesus whom they did not see. And all along in this account, it's like, come on, guys, you should have more clarity, you should have more vision, but I'll go back to what I said before, you cannot see what you are not looking for. And, and thankfully, thankfully, we have a God who does not dismiss doubters, but he has one who addresses them. We've got to keep moving here. Uh, next part, he said to them, Jesus said to them, come on, guys, how foolish are you, how slow to believe all that the prophets have, smoke, have spoken. Did the Messiah not have to suffer these things? Cleopas, dad's glory. And then enter his glory. Cleopas, you know from firsthand experience what the pressure is like to be the glory of your dad. Did you not know that the Messiah had to suffer in order to fulfill the glory for his father? And then one of my favorite, favorite, favorite sections in the New Testament. This is what Jesus does. Beginning with Moses. And in case you don't know what that means, Moses wrote Genesis, first book of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, first five books. Beginning at the beginning. And going all the way through the prophets. And the prophets extend to the very end of the Old Testament. So basically, using all the scriptures that had been revealed up to that point, Jesus walked seven miles explaining to them how he had to die. And I can't imagine what that would have been like. So, so maybe Jesus was on that road with them saying, hey guys, remember that one part in Genesis where God said he would send a descendant to crush the serpent's head? And they're like, yeah, yeah, I remember that. And Jesus says, remember that part where the serpent bruises the descendant's heel? Well, yeah. Maybe Jesus pointed to the Passover lamb. I'm sure he did. And, and Jesus said, you remember how that Passover lamb spared the, the Israelites from death? They're like, oh yeah, that was amazing that the Israelites lived. And, and Jesus maybe pointed out that it didn't turn out so well for the lamb, did it? No, I, I guess it didn't. And bit by bit, Jesus built their faith on an entirely different foundation. 
And then suddenly, there was this moment where it dawned on them, well, wait, 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 wait. So, so maybe it's been God's plan all along that the Messiah would die? Yeah. But not to stay dead. And so it's amazing how he walks them through this and, and how he addresses them, not dismissing them. Uh, next part. So greater conviction begins when, when we start to do the very same thing that Jesus did with these two disciples. You stop trying to pile up the what's and keep track of all the details and all the information, but you start just looking at the why. Well, why did he have to suffer? Why did he have to die? And when you get down to the foundation, that's where you see Jesus beginning to build a different picture of faith. And to get that, we'll look at this last section. We'll wrap up this story. But uh, these two disciples, um, this will show you again why I believe they're husband and wife. They, they get to Emmaus, and they say to Jesus, hey, stay with us tonight. So it's, it seems to make sense that they're a husband and wife, right? And so they say, stay with us. It's getting late. Why don't you come on in? They still don't know it's him, but they just want to show some kindness to this stranger who has just enlightened them in so many different ways. And so Jesus says, sure, all right, I guess I'll stop with you. I'll have a meal and spend the night. And so here's what happens. It's ironic. The, the guest becomes the host. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread. He took it. <laughs> he gave thanks. He thanked God for it. He thanked his father for it. He broke it. And then this next section almost seems to go in slow motion. He began to give it to them, implying all he's doing is he's beginning to give it to them. He's reaching out his hands. And later on, these two people would look at this moment back in their minds, and they would say, that was the exact moment when we saw something. It was then their eyes were opened. They recognized him, and then he did his ninja thing again. He disappeared from their sight. Now, many people have looked at this, and it seems the most common explanation is that when he extended his hands to them, it was then they saw these marks, these holes, these scars strategically placed between the two bones in the, in the, in the wrist where the, the Romans would sometimes pierce nails through to attach people to a cross. And they, and they looked at these scars, both hands, and, and they thought to themselves, wait, 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 wait a minute. Nobody has scars like that and lives to tell the story. And it's at that moment their eyes were open that not just did the Messiah have to suffer and die, but he's been teaching us all along even though we couldn't see him. And they think about this later. And, and so this is the, the last part here. Uh, next slide. So they asked each other, well, were not our hearts burning within us when he opened the scriptures to us. When, when faith wasn't just a bunch of things stacked on top of each other, whether it's things about God or our expectations or things we wanted, but all of a sudden faith had nothing to do with the house of cards we were defending. Now faith had a foundation. And in that moment, it didn't really matter to them all the different things they still had to work on and explain and figure out. And that's because Jesus gave them a different model to work with. The, the answer was in front of them all along. Here it is. Every facet of faith stands 
on Jesus' resurrection. This is not a house of cards. It's this truth. It's truth that Jesus is alive, and, and that is the thing that holds, that contains all things related to faith. And application of that, simply what it means is there will be times in life where you'll pick out something and you'll say, well, wait a minute, this doesn't make much sense. Maybe it's some science stuff. Maybe, maybe it's relational stuff. Maybe it's just world stuff. I don't know. But your faith will be rocked a little bit because you're not so sure about this and you want to look into it. But that doesn't undermine your faith. Your faith is not built on that. It's built on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because there is one who has faced death and now has come through it and come back to you, that is where your faith rests. To summarize that thought, one last passage here. This is John the Apostle, um, oldest apostle living. He writes this letter. He says, you, dear children, are from God. You have overcome them. You've overcome all these doubts, all these questions, all these attacks on your faith. And the reason you've overcome them is because your faith is not this house of cards that's delicate. You don't need to be gentle with it. You don't need to defend it. Because the one who is in you, the resurrected Lord, with his resurrection power, is greater than anything else you can face in this world. And it's in that moment when you realize your faith is no house of cards, your faith rests on the resurrection, and everything is drawn from that, there you find a greater conviction. So I pray this series has been a blessing for you as you look at the different things in your life that are greater because you have a Savior who's alive. Make sure you join us next week as we launch a brand new series. Let's close with, close with a prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Thank you. Thank you that you did not just settle our debt, settle our sin, which by itself is this amazing thing, but then you went farther to to give us this conviction, this, this relationship by faith, which is so strong and certain simply because your son is alive. I pray that all of us in this room would find greater conviction, knowing that we don't have to defend every little piece of faith. We don't have to defend every chapter of the Bible. Yes, there's lots of learning that all of us will do. But at the end of the day, our faith does not rest in the house we can build. It rests in the empty tomb. For your glory, amen. Well, at this time, we'll have a chance to uh, collect an offering that supports our gospel ministry here at Bethlehem. As we do so, if you'd like to learn more about Bethlehem before you support it financially, we totally get it. Don't feel obligated to put anything in the plate. One thing that would be a great uh, use to us is if you could take those uh, binders in each row, the connection books, fill out some information so we know that who was uh, visiting us today or who was our guest, and uh, pass it to others in, their, in your row so that they can fill it out too. Uh, While we do that, uh, ushers, you can go ahead and come forward. I'm sorry, guest service professionals, you can go ahead and come forward. And uh, while they do that, just a couple of quick announcements for you. Number one, in just a minute, we're going to bring out the Pastor Ben, the lead pastor of Bethlehem, in all of his glory. And he's going to share with us some some exciting news about ways that we as a church, as as a body, can make a greater impact in our community. And so that's going to be a lot of fun. The other thing is... If you have questions about God, if you have doubts, if you're looking to reconnect, or maybe you're just brand new to this whole church thing, 
we have this amazing environment called, coming up called Starting Point, which is designed to address doubt well, and not dismiss doubters. And so if, if you'd like to learn more about Starting Point or if maybe you're ready to, to sign up for it, either speak with me or Pastor Ben or uh, go to our website to the events tab. Um, that'll give you some information about what Starting Point is. Uh, in just a moment, we'll continue with Lord's Supper. It always amazes me to think back to the night, the evening that Jesus began this meal. He was celebrating the Passover meal with his disciples, which was a meal all about remembering how God delivered Israel from Egypt. And on this night, Jesus began a new meal to remember an even greater deliverance, which he would, which he would offer through his sacrifice. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me here in this meal by his power, by his word, that Jesus offers his body and blood together with this bread and wine to grant forgiveness of sins. So I welcome forward those who are members of Bethlehem to come forward with repentant hearts to receive this free forgiveness. Come forward at the direction of our ushers. <laughs> 